The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, um, a couple of things that I want to clean up um, that uh, I, I haven't had the chance to teach on. I know Andy Wynn taught in my uh, absence a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure exactly all the things he covered, but I have an idea. And we may go over some of those things again. I don't mind a little redundancy um, in covering these things. But one of the things I'd like to uh, touch on, the, the two basic uh, officers that are established in the New Testament as an ongoing pattern for New Testament churches, elders and deacons. We've talked a lot about elders. Uh, we haven't said much about deacons by way of their function in the local church, what it is they do. Um, and I have to say that I don't find any biblical answer, direct biblical answer to that question. Okay? In other words, what is the job description of a deacon? Uh, I'm not asking what are their character traits or you know, those, quali- those qualities that make up the individual. Those things are spelled out, I think, in 1 Timothy 3. What kind of people should serve as deacons? What they should be doing is what I'm addressing. And uh, Acts 6 would probably be the only clear indication. The problem with that passage, of course, is that the word deacon doesn't appear. The verbal form of serving does, but we know that service is a, an ongoing pattern for all the whole Christian life and that we are serving Christ, even though we know very well that the Lord said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, yet we desire to serve him, don't we? And uh, that's a good thing. It's fine for us to desire to serve Christ. I think what he's meaning there is that uh, he doesn't need anything from us. He came to give to us salvation. And uh, so he's really ruling out any of our good works in that regard, etc. But the fact of the matter is we do need to serve. And even in that very pattern or passage, he said, you know, if you want, anybody wants to be great, you must be a servant. Anybody wants to be first has to be a slave. And so the, the upward path is really, in this world, a downward path. Long story short, I don't find, therefore, any passage that tells us directly in Scripture what deacons are to do. So, therefore, generally, the answer to that question has come from inferences from Acts 6 and from tradition, um, you know, church history, that kind of thing, localized traditions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We just need to know that there aren't any verses in particular that we're looking at to try to find out what deacons should do. Traditionally, then, if you have a church with a plurality of elders, the elders have been entrusted with the task of spiritual oversight uh, and really anything to do with the life of the church. They're given that and trust from God ultimately, but also entrusted with that oversight by the local church. Um, that uh, they have the right to look over anything to do with the church. But in the pattern of the spirit of Acts chapter 6, in which they said it would not be right for us, these are the apostles speaking now, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. I think there's a, a pattern that most local churches have picked up, that elders are to give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, and that there are certain physical functions that deacons tend to look after 
And I accept that general division, even though I don't find it directly taught in Scripture. I think the pattern is there in Acts 6. And so, therefore, traditionally in churches with the plurality of elders, uh, the elders certainly have the right to oversee anything that the deacons are doing, certainly have oversight responsibility for that. They're able to ask about any of those functions. The deacons then, in a practical sense, report to the elders. Um, and that's very important to understand that. It's not the situation that the uh, deacons uh, could say to the elders, it's really none of your business what we're doing with the, with the finances. It's really none of your business what we're doing with the church grounds. That's been entrusted to us, etc. That would not be an appropriate response. But yet it's wise for the elders to uh, focus primarily on the spiritual ministry of the church, on the shepherding of souls, on outreach, you know, evangelism, those kinds of things, prayer certainly, and to entrust certain other functions to deacons. What would they be? Really anything of that kind of a temporal nature, uh, anything really that the elders could see fit to entrust to them that they think would be a bit off the path of those kinds of spiritual oversights. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Any questions about that? What are deacons to do? Okay, anything about that at all? Okay, uh, there's just a number of little topics that I'm wanting to address. That was the first. The second is just an overview of congregationalism. All right, I think that Andy has already covered, and, and this is in the kind of main Wayne Grudem stuff. Uh, if you need any of it, I think it's at the back there. Um, so see if I can find it. Uh, the different patterns by overview, page 14 in the general handout. Again, if you don't have one, I think there's some stacked up at the back. So um, I'm going to look at the Grudem handout and then uh, something from Mark Dever's booklet. Uh, and by the way, those booklets are still up there uh, from Mark Dever and from Nine Marks over there on the table. They're free for you to come and take if you didn't get one yet. There's two of them over there that would be helpful for you to read and learn from. There are three basic patterns of church government that uh, uh, really, I think, draw in most of the uh, uh, churches, the Christian churches that we know of. Uh, the three patterns are the Episcopalian pattern, the Presbyterian pattern, and the Congregational pattern. Those are the three basic patterns that there are. Um, within the uh, Episcopalian, uh, I'm on page 14, the basic idea is of a top-down structure. It is not congregational. The congregations are under the authority uh, the local congregations are under the authority of the priests. The priests are under the authority of the bishops, generally. Those are the titles. And bishops under the authority of the archbishops all the way up to the head of that church, whoever that is. Uh, certainly the, the, the clearest and uh, uh, most um, uh, powerful and biggest uh, of all the Episcopalian-type churches is the Roman Catholic Church the head, so to speak, humanly speaking, of that church being the Pope, and uh, all the way down. So there's a top-down structure. Therefore, the property is owned by uh, the church as a whole. I've often wondered if the Roman Catholic Church is the number one real estate holder in the world. They probably are. Uh, they own all of the lands of the church and all of the buildings. And who can imagine? I mean, how do you put a price on the Sistine Chapel? I don't have any idea. I don't think you could buy a, find a buyer that would be able to give whatever it would be worth. But the long story short, it's a top-down structure. And so, uh, but the, the Roman Catholic Church is not the only one with this uh, approach. Of course, the Episcopalian or the Anglican churches have this approach as well. 
Henry VIII basically made himself the pope of that church. He really didn't want to stop being Roman Catholic, except that he wanted a divorce and the pope wouldn't give it to him. So he said, okay, fine, I'll start my own church. So he became kind of a massive church planter at that point, but not in the good way, um, basically just kind of taking over the role. He really wanted to continue Roman Catholic. And so therefore the Anglican church was very much Roman Catholic under Henry VIII's understanding. It's just he became the temporal head of that church. But again, very much a top-down structure. Um, the movements that came from that, of course, after the American Revolution, you had the Episcopalian structure over in, the, in, in uh, North America follow, follow the same approach, but not looking to England at that point, but again, the same top-down approach. The idea then in the Episcopalian, again, is that the local church, uh, the church buildings are owned by the Episcopalian church. Uh, they also have the authority to tell the local church who their priest is. There are archbishops and all that. Again, a top-down structure. That's the whole Episcopalian approach. Now, we've seen in the Episcopalian church in America the big problem when you have doctrinal issues, when, this, when the church goes corrupt on issues like uh, homosexuality or women priests or all that, when, when they become unbiblical, the corruption can spread very quickly and local churches that don't buy it, don't believe it, don't accept it, are really stuck at that point because uh, they have to accept whatever priest the episcopacy sends to them and they can't refuse it and uh, it becomes a big problem. Uh, an extreme example of this in church history was uh, a godly uh, man, Charles Simeon, was established in, in that kind of a church, and the people didn't want him as their priest because they were bad. The local church at that point was corrupt. So they had, given, they had been given a gift of a good pastor, but none of them wanted to hear him, and they owned the pews, and so they locked the pews, and no one sat in them. But the people loved to hear him preach, the, the people who were not church members, and they'd sit on the floors in the, in the aisles to come and hear Charles Simeon preach. So it's an odd thing if you'd been there in the early 1800s, seeing all the pews empty and the church packed. All right, so it just, uh, and this went on for years and years as the people stubbornly refused to accept him as their priest. But again, there's a picture of the Episcopalian system. They had no choice in the matter. Uh, the only choice they had is to not come, and that's what they did. They locked the pews and they didn't come. Um, so that's the Episcopalian approach. Methodists, again, have a similar structure uh, because they're spinning off of that whole um, Anglican, that it was born in the Anglican system. So just two steps removed then from the Roman Catholic system. Again, a top-down structure, Episcopalian. All right, uh, any questions about that? Just, I'm just going over what these things generally look like, all right, what your, what your options are. There are three. Go ahead. Looking at all these, but looking at Baptists, do you find any negatives in the way Baptists approach uh, the congregational approach, um, negatives. Well, I, I just think that anytime human beings are involved there, and sin is involved, there are, there are negatives, so definitely. I mean, the fact of the matter is the contagion goes both directions. You know, you can have, as I just mentioned, a local church that's bad. They went bad. They didn't accept a godly man, Charles Simeon. I don't embrace the structure or the system there, the Episcopalian approach. But the local church there was wrong. I think that the uh, local church in Northampton was wrong to kick Jonathan Edwards out because of his views on the halfway covenant and the Lord's Supper and that he only wanted regenerate people taking the Lord's Supper. I think he was right and they were wrong. I guess I, I should have cleared up a little bit. I was thinking about the convention and the oh. influence the convention has on the local church. Southern Baptist Convention. Right. Yeah. And as some of the controversial things that have happened at conventions. Right. Uh, do you think there are negatives? Yes, I do. I think that uh, that the see the the Southern Baptist Convention can make a pronouncement or have a decree or make decisions, 
But the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, basically the fruit of a congregational system, knows very well that it has no right to enforce or impose those decisions. It just basically puts out products for the local church to take if they'd like, like the Baptist Faith and Message or other things. This is the statement of messengers that have come from the local churches. And those messengers represent those local churches, but there's no authority by the Southern Baptist Convention to force local churches to accept those statements. So it really is more like you said, Lynn, the word you used was influence. And that influence can be positive, but it might also be negative. So my answer is yes, there are flaws whenever human beings are involved. But I still think that the congregational system is better for the local church and better in general. It has consistently shown uh, more resistance to false doctrine than the top-down structure. The top-down, all Satan needs to do is get a, a key handful of people corrupted and then the churches get corrupted very quickly. That's the whole issue with leadership. When you have bad leaders, the people get corrupted quickly. I actually think there's a whole book devoted to that particular theme, and that's the book of Judges. The Levites failed to do their job teaching the law of Moses, and look what happened to the people. And so if you have bad leaders, the people go corrupt very quickly. And so therefore, I think it really does argue for the strength of the congregational system, but I agree that there are problems no matter what. So the examples I was giving of like the congregational church that kicked Jonathan Edwards out on the half, halfway covenant and all that, you know, what I've heard Mark Dever say, and I agree, that church had every right to do it. They're just wrong to do it. <laughs> okay? The structurally, they had the right to do it, but they shouldn't have done it. They were wrong, etc. So no matter what, if people are going to get involved, uh, there's going to be sin involved. So uh, at any rate, uh, the, the second system is the Presbyterian system. And again, I'm not going into, into biblical supports for each of these or, or problems with them, etc. I assume that Andy went through all that. I'm just giving you the options, and then I'm going to give a defense for congregationalism. The Presbyterian system um, basically uh, looks similar to what we're advocating here, going to a plurality of elders. Um, and so that's called a session. Um, each local church elects their elders to a session or group of elders. But then that's where it becomes different at that point. The pastor of the church, one of the elders, equal in authority, I'm on page 16, to the other elders. The session has authority over the local church. However, the members of the session are also members of the local presbytery. So basically, a lot of, a lot of local churches all send their elders together, and they together make up the presbytery. So all of the, the elders of a, of a region of local churches then get together in the thing called the presbytery, and that presbytery has authority over those, those churches in the region in ways that we wouldn't accept as congregationalists. So basically, another church's elders can tell this local church what to do about certain key things. All right? Uh, and then some members of the presbytery are chosen to be members of the general assembly, kind of nationally, let's say. So there's a kind of a hierarchical kind of court system there. And the idea is that you can have a court of appeals. You can deal with, let's say, congregations that have gone bad. You can discipline a congregation at that point, kick them out of the presbytery if they do something wrong, etc. Uh, there's more control uh, in that approach. However, it's hard to find other than Acts 15. And let me tell you something. All these systems look to Acts 15 and find find cause for their system in Acts 15. They all do. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council on Circumcision. And they all say, you see, you see, and they point to Acts 15. So that's uh, when it gets all very, very interesting. But they're going to say, yeah, that's the synod or that's the, uh, that's the general assembly. That's what was going on there, et cetera. But Presbyterian, Presbyterianism. So it's interlocking courts. The idea then would be, let's say there was a uh, case of, of church discipline and the individual felt they'd been dealt with unfairly by their own local church. They have a court of appeals. They can go up to the presbytery and appeal their case. 
if they don't like what they get from the presbytery, they can go to the General Assembly and appeal their case. And so there's this, this hierarchy of courts of appeals. The problem is you don't find any of that at all, especially in the issue of church discipline. You don't find that at all in the Bible. That's just what Presbyterians, uh, what they do. All right, the third is congregational. Yeah. Uh, so in comparing that to the system we're talking about, mm-hmm. like I can see the plurality of elders, which, as you said, is very similar. Then up at the top end there, General Assembly seems like a version of the convention, but with power instead of influence. Exactly. Do we have anything uh, that correlates in some sense to that middle level? No. Like a local area? Nope. nope. Again, it's always going to be influence, not power. The associations, well, yeah, for example... Yeah. Okay, so it's, uh, these associations, I guess. It, I associations guess. have influence and not power. Same thing. Um, you know, we belong to the Eights Association. And thank God they have influence and not power. I'll go on record and say that, okay? I have no problem saying that, okay? Why? Because many of the churches around here have uh, turned away from the true gospel, quite frankly. And uh, I... I we find ourselves in voluntary association with them to do, to do ministry uh, by more tradition than anything else. I think it's an issue on the table for us to continue looking at our relationship with them. But that's another, another day uh, to have that discussion. All I'm saying is that these are voluntary associations we, as a local church, voluntarily connect with. They all recognize them as voluntary. They, don't, they do not have any authority. And so, therefore, an individual sinner... A person here who would be disciplined by this church has no court of appeals to go to. What do they do practically? They just go to another Baptist church. That's what ends up happening. Uh, So that would be perhaps when a failure of the congregational mode, etc., because multiple congregational churches in the same area, geographical region, can kind of undercut church discipline if if the local churches are not vigilant on that. You know, new members who come here we do ask, do you have any outstanding discipline issues with other, other churches? We want to be sure that there isn't anything like that going on. But, uh, I'll, well, I don't know. There's a lot more we could say about that. But the difference is, I, I like how you put it. It's, it's going to be influence and not power across the board. So the final court of appeals in congregationalism is the local congregation itself. And that's the key concept with congregationalism. At the human level, there's nothing higher than the local church. That's what it is. That's the basic idea of congregationalism. There is no top-down structure. There is no ecclesiastical body above the local church that tells the local church what to do, tells them who to hire or fire as a pastor, tells them what to believe, what confessions they must sign off on in order to, uh, to continue in, you know, in good fellowship with that group, etc., uh, to do with the, uh, with the property, with the money that's given. Uh, that there's nothing mandated. Uh, it's all voluntary association. As Lynn pointed out and others, there is influence and there can be problems with that influence but there's no authority to uh, force those things. Okay? Any questions about what congregationalism is before we actually defend it from Scripture? There are different kinds of congregational models. I think you've seen that. Um, there are different diagrams here. I mean, there are probably as many as there are local churches. That's the whole point with congregationalism. They can kind of organize themselves how they see fit. They can have a plurality of elders. They can have a senior pastor and a board of deacons. They can have committees. They can have all kinds of stuff. Um, for, for me, um, I think it's best to look to the scripture and try to make sure that the polity in the local church is as faithful as uh, faithful to scripture as possible. 
Um, I know for, uh, in, within our polity that we will not see a change to our polity unless the congregation chooses to do so in August at the church conference in August. Um, therefore, for me, if I personally as a senior pastor believe that this approach is biblical, my approach to that is going to be to teach and to persuade and to show from Scripture. To me, that's what I think the essence of spiritual leadership is. Uh, it's not to say that spiritual leaders don't have decisions to make. They do. But basically, when you're leading a church, it's a matter of teaching and, and showing from the Scriptures, explaining from the Scriptures that something is a, is a biblical course of action. But in, within our congregational polity, which isn't changing, that's what it's been, that's what it will continue to be, uh, we couldn't go over to plurality of elders without the congregation assenting to that. And that's what we're asking the church to do in August. Uh, and that's what the draft of uh, new bylaws is out there uh, to, to be. It will not be anything more than a draft, anything more than a piece of paper, or actually a bunch of pieces of paper stapled together um, until the church ratifies it and says this is going to be our new operating document. Okay, So that's the issue of, of congregationalism. Let's, uh, let's talk about a biblical support for congregationalism. I don't think I've given this out yet, so... Let's see if we can get that out. A couple of you be willing to stand up and pass these out. It would be helpful. The material from this, I should have put it on the sheet, but it's primarily coming from one of Mark's, uh, Mark Dever's pamphlets over there. Um, I forget which one. One of the two of them over there. They actually have some overlapping content. I, I think it was on the table last week, so some of you may have grabbed it. Um, so... All right, uh, let me just begin with the paragraph um, here at the top. The biblical support for congregational polity is far thinner than for other uh, major doctrines like the deity of Christ and justification by faith alone. We recognize that the Presbyterian system of church government has its learned advocates, as, to the, as does the Episcopal system. We recognize that the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, seems to support these other two systems if viewed in a certain way. However, the general pattern of congregationalism can be supported from four significant issues that are clearly entrusted to congregations in the New Testament. Disputes, doctrine, discipline, and church membership. Also, even with apostles on the scene in the New Testament, the responsibility of congregations to shoulder these matters is clearly implied in Paul's church planning method. So the, the, the apostles are still there. They're still on the scene, and already we're seeing an emerging congregationalism. It's already starting. Um, Let's look at each of these four key matters and the evidence they give for congregationalism. First of all, congregations decide disputes. Now, there's not a lot. There's, there's going to be clearly some overlap between this and the issue of discipline. Um, but uh, let's just start at the dispute level, all right? Uh, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is a very, very significant text for congregationalism. It may be perhaps the most significant text for congregationalism. Um, the reason is, notice who it is that you tell it to at the final level. That's the key. The key is you're telling it to the church. Notice, by the way, you're not telling it to the elders. It doesn't mean the elders don't have a role to play. I believe they do. Um, but it does mean that the final court of appeal here is the church. And by this, I think it's very clear that this means the local church. We know that Jesus uses the word church in a different way. I think it's clearly different. In Matthew 16, when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
I think that's clear that he's talking there about the body of Christ, the universal church, the invisible church, a lot of different ways that theologians have spoken about it, but it's all of the all of the regenerate people that he's saving. He's going to build that church and the gates of Hades will not prove uh, prevail against it. The thing here, though, in Matthew 18 is you have to have a local church understanding here. Who are you going to tell it to? It's really kind of hard. I'm not saying this facetiously. It's hard to find the invisible church, okay, and tell it anything, all right? It's got to be a local church. You've got to have a church who knows the people involved and can deal with it appropriately. Notice what, what else is said here, all right? So this, this implies that the church has a right to deal with these things. You're not telling it to the uh, plurality of elders at this point, finally. Certainly, the elders can get involved in these intermediate steps so it never goes to the church. Isn't there an implication here in Matthew 18 that it'd be best for it not to go to the final church lever, uh, level? You can, it starts with just one individual going to another individ, individual in private and dealing with it privately. That's, that's the way many of these, these things should be dealt with. You know, it's actually a, it's a very big thing when everyone in the church knows about a sin and is, everybody's thinking about that sin and dealing with it publicly. That's a big deal. And so the Lord actually clearly says in private, but between the two of you, you know, work it out. All right. But so the elders, I think, can get involved in the intermediate levels, though they are not mentioned here. The issue I'm having here is with Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism. There's no court of appeals if the local church, as far as they're concerned, blow it or make a mistake. There is nothing above this. Uh, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector is the next stage. It's not go to the presbytery. It's not go to another structure. So that's the argument, the way it works. There's no supreme court, so to speak, to which the resolution of a dispute can be appealed or finally resolved. Then again, uh, yes? I don't have any more. Here's one. Thank you. Um, another example of, of disputes comes in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. If any uh, of you has a dispute with another... Uh, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges men, even men of little account in the church. So there's that word church in verse 4. Um, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to another... Uh, goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Boy, that's an important phrase. I mean, just lay it down. Is it that important? Is it really important enough to rupture the unity of the church over that? It is so important. Schismatics, uh, you know, those that would bring schisms between brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a big, big deal. And so in this, this is clearly a temporal matter, perhaps an issue of money, a lawsuit kind of thing. What Paul's mentality here is just eat it. I mean, it's better to just eat it than to go in front of the unbelievers. Two brothers? There's a sense of shame here. I mean, how in the world can you have this lawsuit and then both of you try to lead the judge to Christ, you know, or the, or the courtroom to Christ? It's just, it's a shameful thing. But behind it is an implication of the sufficiency of the local church to solve the problem. Do you see that? You don't need them. You don't need the unbelievers. You've got the church. Do you see that? And, and he's almost saying, is it actually, could it even be possible that, that, there, that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute like that? He implies there absolutely must be somebody wise enough to settle a dispute like this. 
So he says, if you have a dispute, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. He's, there's a little bit of, you know, he's saying, I'd rather have somebody like that than a non-Christian sitting over, over a case like that. Long story short is I think that this is, in, in essence, an argument for congregationalism. There's, it's a, the congregation is sufficient to solve these kind of disputes. We don't need, we don't need the courtrooms. And I, I think this is important. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything like this happen. I, I think lawsuits have been threatened, et cetera. I think from time to time some issues have come up in my 10 years here. Um, but I, I think this set, settles it very, very plainly that just you would never go to, law, uh, go to law against a brother or sister in Christ. just would never happen. It, it would be better for you to eat the matter than to take somebody to court like that. That's what he's saying. But that's not my point here. My point here is it's an argument for uh, congregationalism. Note verses 4 and 5, I say at the bottom of the sheet. Uh, in the church, we highlight again, there's no higher court, etc. And then in Acts 6, 1 through 6, again... Um, that's a matter of settling a dispute. The dispute there, I'm not going to read all the verses. They're familiar to you. But the dispute there was that the Grecian Jews uh, uh, were uh, being overlooked. The Grecian widows were being overlooked um, among the widows in the daily distribution of food. And so, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to go ahead and read it, um, starting at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicander, Tim, and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the early church had a dispute over the daily distribution of food to Greek-speaking widows. The dynamic between the congregation and the apostles is striking. The congregation discerns the problem. The congregation reports the problem to the apostles. The apostles propose the solution. The congregation chooses leaders from among them to address the issue. The congregation presents these leaders to the apostles who pray and lay their hands on them. The apostles entrust their responsibility to the leaders chosen by the congregation. Dispute solved. I think there's a beautiful balance here between the apostles and the congregation here. Now, how they chose the seven, we don't know. What role leaders played or even the apostles played uh, in that, we don't know. It's implied the apostles didn't play much of a role in choosing because they say, brothers, choose seven men from among you. There's many things we don't know. We don't know if there's a democratic process in choosing them or if, or if everybody just knew who the seven would be. No idea. There's a lot of things we don't know. But we do see a beautiful balance here between the leadership of the church uh, represented by the apostles and the congregation, um, and they are able uh, to solve this dispute. And I don't think it's an accident. I didn't quote this here. But uh, I think in verse 7 it says, the word of God continue to increase and spread. The implication there is if you don't get the dispute solved, things kind of shut down at that point. It's hard to keep the word of God continue to spread and people keep getting saved. So it's a bad thing when a church can't get along. It's a bad thing when there's disputes. All I'm saying here in Acts 6 is there seem to be, uh, um, seem to be resources enough to solve disputes within the congregation itself. Okay? The second uh, uh, responsibility entrusted to con- uh, congregations is the discerning of doctrine. And this is very, very important, I think, also uh, when it comes to the issue of plurality of elders. All right? Very, very important. Bottom line on this one, let me just summarize what I'm about to say. Congregations are responsible to not have teachers over them who teach false doctrine. They're held accountable for this. And so if basically a congregation, whether the Church of Galatia or any of these, are having false teachers, it's their fault. There's a sense of that. They shouldn't have these kind of people. Also, some of these verses are going to say in the end times, some of the congregations are going to want 
bad teachers and look for them and seek them. But still, there's this idea that the congregation is held accountable for this, this yearning for bad doctrine. That's the idea. And in some cases, we're going to see some con- congregations commended for their refusal of, uh, of accepting false teaching. But the bottom line is a congregational view of their responsibility uh, concerning their doctrinal life. Uh, and so we'll talk more about that. But again, there's, a, I think, a beautiful balance then between the plurality of elders and the kind of doctrines they're teaching. They need to be able to teach. But the congregation is going to be tracking the teaching. The congregation is going to be listening to the teaching and, and assessing to see if it's so, to see if it's biblical. And as the congregation gets stronger and stronger, then as elders die or, or are called to another ministry, etc., then they're going to be drawing in or calling in other uh, elders um, who uh, are going to meet those same patterns that have been well established. They're going to teach faithfully good doctrine. They're, they're going to know what to look for. So it's a measurement, a beautiful balance there between, I think it's the fruit of a faithful ministry of the Word of God that that congregation can discern godly elders and choose them and, and establish them well. One question quickly, and then we'll, so we'll have plenty of time for Q&A, Dan, but go ahead. It's all right. Go ahead, quickly. At least one instance in the book of Revelation uh, mm-hmm. when Christ, uh, I guess, commends, I guess what I'm asking is when he talks to the church or the angel of the church in Thyatira and mm-hmm. he commends that angel mm-hmm. for not, uh, for tolerating, no, no, not a command, condemns him for tolerating a particular false teacher. Right. And um, was that, in your view, the congregation he's speaking to? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I'll get to that because he commends the church at Ephesus for, uh, and the reason is that there's a, 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 a plural, um, you know, the you is plural, and he's speaking to them as a group, and also he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's speaking to the churches as a whole. That's a very good question. All right, let's start with Galatians. Um, look at Paul's attitude toward the church at Galatia. I'm astonished that you, again plural, are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. This is really very striking, okay? Paul is... Very put out with the church at Galatia for tolerating the false teachers, the Judaizers, the circumcision group, those that were teaching a mixture of the law of Moses with the gospel of Christ. He's, he's put out with them because they're tolerating it. Some people are throwing you into confusion, uh, confusion. They're perverting the gospel. The idea, the implication is you shouldn't have allowed those some people to do that. And he even goes so far, he himself, an apostle, he says, if I come and preach a gospel other than the one you already heard from us, kick me out too. The message, the doctrine is above any individual. And so even if an angel from heaven should come and preach a gospel other than that one, let him be eternally condemned. He's very strong in this. And he, and he implies, you before whom your very eyes you know, uh, Jesus Christ was, well, here it is, right here. I don't have to quote it from memory. Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In other words, you heard the true gospel. <clears throat> I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Very strong language. I think, fr- frankly, of all of his epistles, the strongest. 
And uh, the implication here, again, is a congregational one. They should have rejected these false teachers. They were responsible for that. They should not have accepted them teaching this, this gospel. They should have known better. All right, false teachers were coming and the congregation's accountable. You see the same thing in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 5. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you received, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, this, this whole idea, this is an a, a interpretive key to 2 Corinthians. Apparently, there are these people who the NIV translates with super apostles who are disparaging Paul's ministry, who um, I, I'm not going to give a full description of these super apostles, but what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 11 is he's, again, put out with them. I don't want to use the word frustrated. I don't know what verb, but he's negative toward them because they're putting up with this. They're putting up with it and they should be more discerning than this. Again, look at the next uh, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 19 through 21. You gladly put up with fools. By the way, KJV gives us suffer fools gladly. That's where that expression comes from. Suffer means put up with. You uh, gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. Very ironic here in his approach. But again, behind it is, you ought to know better. You are responsible for this. How can you take these people? These people are dominating you. They're treating you badly. They're even somewhat metaphorically slapping you in the face and you're putting up with it. And he's saying, you are responsible. You ought to kick them out is the idea. Don't accept this kind of teaching. Again, congregationalism. The congregation then is responsible uh, for the kind of teaching they're hearing. All right, turn the page. <clears throat> wants them to take responsibility for the kind of teachers and leaders they embrace. Church at Ephesus. Uh, Susan just mentioned Thyatira, but we'll go with Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, are not and have found them false. Christ is commending the church at Ephesus for their spiritual discernment. They have tested spiritual leaders, men who claim to be apostles but are not. They have assumed responsibility for their leaders and their doctrinal life. False teachers will pay a severe penalty on Judgment Day. By the way, um, this is the same church uh, that's referred to in Acts 20. Remember, it was the elders from Ephesus that Paul um, charges with all those things in Acts 20. And he says, even from your own number, men will arise. Savage wolves will come from the outside, not sparing the flock. So inside and outside, there's going to be threats. Apparently, up to this point, they've done a good job in keeping their leadership pure, uh, keeping free from those kinds of threats. If any wolf, so to speak, came up from inside, they tested them and found them false. So they were ready and they were prepared. And thank God for it. I mean, it's a good thing when warnings are given and they take the proper effect. And so the church is, is carefully uh, looking out for his doctrine. It's just that Jesus has something else against them. They've forsaken, they've left their first love. And he gets to that. But the idea here is, again, a congregational view. By the way, let's understand, as much as the congregations are responsible, <coughs> false teachers are incredibly responsible for what they do. All right? They are responsible. It's a great thing to teach false doctrine, a very significant thing. And the most important, the, the, I think the most poignant chapter on this is Second Peter 2. Blackest darkness is reserved for them these false false teachers. 
There will be false teachers among you as there were false prophets among the Jews of old. And what he's saying is a very, very serious thing. So let's not imagine that just because the church is responsible. If the church isn't responsible for the individuals, they're going to stand before God. The church is responsible that the individuals not be accepted as, as elders or leaders or teachers in that church anymore. That's what they're responsible for. They ought to kick them out. And so therefore, false doctrine is a reason for getting rid of or disciplining elders, not just sinful behavior, etc. Philippians 3, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Again, these are false teachings of the circumcision party. For we are the circumcision, we worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Again, watch out for the means, don't let them be established as teachers over you. Um, Paul's arguing, urging, sorry, urging the church of Philippi to guard themselves against false teachers. The overseers and deacons, Philippians 1.1, are called on to do this, of course, but the letter is addressed first to the church. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So the overseers, uh, the uh, overseers and deacons have a responsibility to do this, especially the overseers, but the whole church does. That all the saints in Philippi are responsible to not to watch out for those dogs. And so the mentality here, though this isn't uh, directly germane to our, our discussion, you have Acts 17.11. These are Jews now in Berea uh, who heard the gospel preached at a synagogue and they're commended as noble-minded. Why? Uh, because they mis- receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And so I think that that model has been lifted up I'm not saying ruptured or taken out of context, but I think it's lifted up and applied to the local church that local churches should be like that. They should be noble-minded and they should be examining the scripture to see if what the teacher or the preacher says is true. Okay? And then negatively, very negatively, 2 Timothy 4, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away or aside from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul is faulting the congregations for this kind of false teaching. Based on the other passages we've looked at, it's clear that the desire to gather false teachers around them is a great flaw in these congregations. Therefore, congregations bear responsibility for identifying and submitting to godly leaders and teachers. All right. Um, Three, congregations administer discipline. I told you there's a lot of overlap between resolving disputes and administering discipline, but 1 Corinthians 5 is a clear discipline case. Paul wants this individual kicked out of the church. And there's no doubt about that. I don't know how Matthew 18 has fit into this at this point, but the individual must go. And that's what he says. You should have expelled this man. That's what he's saying. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world, this world, sorry, who are immoral, the greedy, swindlers, idolaters. In that that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man to not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Very, very important um, passage on church discipline. 
And clearly, he's holding the congregation responsible to do it. That's why it's called church discipline. It's not elder discipline. It's something the church does. Um, Paul doesn't mention the elders here. Not that, again, they don't have a role to play in leading the church to fulfill its duties. Final court of appeal, again, for church discipline is the church. This is clear also from Matthew 18. Here, the issue is the expulsion of a sinning member in verse 13. Paul is teaching the whole congregation their responsibility in this issue. I could say more about church discipline now, but it's off the topic. The, uh, what I'm trying to do tonight is give a case for congregationalism. And again, I don't see a presbytery here. I don't see an episcopacy here. I just see the church. That's what I see. All right. Um, the motives for church discipline are laid out. Well, at least I'll give you that. Concern for the spiritual state of the sinner. Uh, hand this man over to Satan so the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved. So we're concerned about the individual that he would be saved. All right. I've said before, and I'll say it again, if this or any church ever disciplines you, um, it should be the major central issue of your life to find out what's going on in your relationship with Christ. I believe basically what the church is saying there is we do not think you're born again. That's what the local church is saying. We do not think you're regenerate. They may be wrong, but you better deal with it seriously. You better deal with it very, very seriously. So it's a serious thing. So that the, his spirit may be saved in the day uh, of the Lord. All right. Secondly, there's a con- concern, sorry, for the purity of the church at whole, of the uh, church as a whole. Even if the individual never repents, there's still good done by expelling the sinner. Okay. A uh, little leaven leavens the whole lump, or a little yeast works with a whole batch of dough. Different ways to say it, but uh, the idea is that if you don't do it, there's a contagion in the church, and it's going to spread. Uh, also, there's a concern for the reputation of the church to outsiders. Uh, this immorality is of such a kind, it says, it does not occur even among pagans. It's a shocking thing, and therefore the reputation of the church goes down when the church doesn't deal with it. So those are three concerns of church discipline, but again, notice it's done by the congregation. Fourthly, and I think we get this from 1 Corinthians 5 as well as from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, congregations determine church membership. Uh, Paul there in 2 Corinthians 2, it says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Uh, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him uh, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, uh, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. I believe what Paul's urging here is that the congregation would reestablish the disciplined sinner to full fellowship. He apparently has repented. Whether this is exactly the same guy as 1 Corinthians 5, many commentators think he is. But in any case, the point is established. It's really local churches, it's the congregations that decide who the members of that church are. Okay? You see that in terms of the expulsion in 1 Corinthians 5. You see it in terms of the reacceptance in 2 Corinthians 2. Again, notice Paul is an apostle here, and he doesn't command them to reestablish this guy. He's an apostle, but he's not a member of that local church. He's saying, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. It's something the church has to decide to do. So these are four evidences of congregationalism. None of these four fit in well to the Episcopal or Presbyterian system. Instead, they make a case for the fact that the local church uh, has the final say in each of these matters. Now, again, uh, concerning the relationship between the church and the elders in terms of teaching, okay, Just because an individual or a group of individuals in the church has a dispute or disagreement with one of the elders or a group of elders on doctrine doesn't mean that the the elder is wrong, all right? It could be, as Paul said, if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. What it does mean, though, is that there's a discussion, there is a freedom of discussion concerning that, and if the church as a whole thinks that the doctrine is wrong, the church has the right to remove an elder from uh, teaching them. Um, However, if um, the elders are 
consistently teaching within the pattern of the faith. You know, it says in Romans chapter 12, uh, if a uh, gift of prophecy, let him use it in proportion to the faith. The idea there, the faith is the accumulating or growing body of doctrines, those things that are accepted and known during that apostolic era before the New Testament was finished. Those things that are being taught must be in con- consistency or conformity with the faith, etc. And so that's what you need to teach. You need to teach those things that are in conformity with the faith. Um, we have now the New Testament. We have the 66 books of the Bible, 27 books in the New Testament. Basically, then, the elders need to teach that. That's what they need to teach. They need to teach the Bible. And the church needs to act, as I've said before, as passive Bereans. You can be as active Bereans as you want. It just gets a little offensive, that's all. Um, if you're saying, you know, like I said, I'm watching you to be sure you are not teaching false doctrine in this church. All right, well, do that. If you feel you need to keep reminding me of that, praise God for you. I'm just saying it would be akin to me me saying, I'm watching you to be sure you don't commit adultery, okay? So I'm going to be praying for you today. I mean, look, those things can be said, but I don't know that it's loving. I mean, those are the things you keep in your back. And until there's evidence or reason for bringing out and, and talking about it, we just accept that the teachings are faithful and true, and we're encouraging uh, those elders. So in a way, you know, that's the way I put the Berean mentality with the submit to your leaders, Hebrews 13 approach. Okay, unbelievable. We have about 10 minutes for Q&A, and we didn't even get to how we identify elders. We were just running out of time, but um, Q&A. And it doesn't have to be on this. It could be on anything to do with the, uh, the bylaws, any stuff at all that we haven't covered up to this point. Paul. So, you know, you mentioned the case of the Ephesian church, and I think that's probably a good point to bring up, uh, something that I've been wondering about. Uh, so the Ephesian church uh, is treated as a body here, but we also know from the rest of the New Testament that, uh, for example, Priscilla and Aquila resided there, uh, several apostles resided there at different points, Paul left Timothy there, and then when Timothy left, he sent someone else to go there and be part of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh so there's some sort of communication going on. Uh, I agree that it doesn't seem like a strict like Presbytery or, or mm-hmm. uh, Episcopal system, but I mean, do we just work that into sort of like the seminary? or I mean, how, how would you address that? Well, that's a good question, a uh, very good question, but I think I might go back to your own words. Uh, it's the difference between influence and authority. What authority did the Ephesian church have over the other local churches? We have no record of any. Um, it just seemed that there were a number of godly laborers that went and worked there. Um, same thing, I would, I would say, the church in Antioch seems to be a very significant church and a lot of good teachers there, and Paul would go back and report there. So there's a sense of influence there, a sense of, and I think we're going to we see that even now. You've got those churches that just have really excellent elders, just outstanding, and they're going to have an influence way beyond just the, the, the boundaries of their own church. They're just, they just have an excellent grasp on doctrine. They're good writers or, or you know, teachers like John MacArthur. I've, I've benefited from his ministry without ever having been a member of his church. But he doesn't have authority over me the way um, that the, the elders have in my life as I've been a church member. Uh, they don't, it's just a different relationship. It's influence. All right. So I think what you'd have to do is you'd have to find evidence for authority, not just influence. And I just don't think there is any. I think there's even less. This is why I'm a Congregationalist. Yes, there's scanty evidence for Congregationalism, but there's even less for Presbyterianism, uh, in my opinion. So, very good question. And by the way, again, I like what I, what I said to Susan a moment ago. 
he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So everybody's kind of listening to what's going on in the other churches, the, the letters to the seven churches. Everybody's supposed to read everybody's mail there in Revelation 2 and 3. So we're going to be learning from other churches. There's influence. There's cross-pollinization. Uh, but in terms of authority, inside, outside, 1 Corinthians 5, you know, who the members are and who's dealing with it, the inside-outside language, that's a local church there. So I don't really know if Priscilla and Aquila were inside, you know, that church or church members or not. Susan, you had a question. And the local congregation's responsibility to, I guess, expunge um, false teachers mm-hmm. would argue for some kind of um, institutionalized transparency in what the elders do. In the previous church where my husband and I were, the people um, suddenly stopped. There was um, there were some people who would not pray in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. When they gave communion, they used language that suggested this was supposed to be a time when we would um, welcome unbelievers, just welcome all people. And then in one conversation, the pastor told uh, told us that he had been encouraged not to bring the Bible up to the pulpit, that this would somehow alienate people. Mm-hmm. When we tried to, Sean and I had multiple discussions with the people, trying to find out who is doing this, and they kind of, who is saying this? And it pretty much got to the point that if we would have been told individuals, I I was pretty much at the point where I would have wanted to do something like, mm-hmm. let's talk about this as a church. But mm-hmm. they kind of pulled in the wagons, and mm-hmm. nobody would ever tell us who it was, and pretty much we just had to leave the church because we weren't content with mm-hmm. the direction we saw things going, and nobody was willing to address it with us. Right. I guess I would just be interested in what that institutional transparency looked like. I don't know what it looks like. And so, for me, you know, for me, I, I think there are very few things as transparent as getting up week after week and teaching from the Bible yeah, and saying this is... Yeah, yeah. and, yeah, I mean, and, you know, to me, I think that's why, again, I advocate verse-by-verse verse exposition because basically what, what I'm going to want to say is, okay, here's what I did with Isaiah 2. Is there something there that, you know... And again, the issue there is not, I, I really hope you're not going to give a sin of omission issue i will tell you right now i will never finish plumbing the depths of any chapter of scripture so if you're frustrated that i didn't mention something or there was a theme that was your favorite theme and why didn't i mention i will just say i plead no contest to that one i could preach 20 sermons on isaiah 2 i just want to keep moving you know because there's great stuff in future chapters all that but now if on the other hand i said something that was false now that's a significant issue you know, and if I said something that was unhelpful, that's significant. And, you know, but that's pretty transparent, Susan. I mean, you're up there and, and you're there. And, and also this thing, this little thing here and the Internet and all that. I mean, it's, it's, it's here I am, you know. And so you're teaching and you're like, is it true? Is it biblical? Is what we're saying true? And again, for me, I think part of the transparency is to say when I'm not certain, when I, when I lead with there's more biblical evidence for the deity of Christ than there is for congregationalism, that we can have good fellowship with people who disagree with us on this, that that's a reputable biblical position. I use that kind of language a lot. And I'm not trying to be wishy-washy or squeamish. I'm just saying that I could be wrong on this. You know, that there are certain, certain things that I've, I've weighed the evidence, I've prayed through it, I'm still listening, still learning, but I could be wrong. But this is where I'm at right now. And I have weighed the evidence, and I think this is the best approach, but I think there are other approaches. What the church will do, et cetera, now that's an interesting thing, and that's where in the end you're going to have to trust leaders. You know, if you say, okay, well, there's a disagreement, but this is what I would do, you know, if I were an elder. If you're not an elder, you don't have that responsibility to, to judge on a gray area issue. 
But what you have to say is, is this view that the elders teaching a reputable biblical position or is it heresy? That's where, where you have to have to. If you have a disagreement, then we can just have fun discussions and we can learn how to love one another while we disagree about something. But, you know, it's an interesting question on institutional transparency because not always are you going to want to say, well, so-and-so said this and they're offended by that and all that because a lot of things should be kept quiet, you know, because that individual is still working through something, you know, and they're, they're not there. And I'd like to give them the time to work it through before they get embarrassed, et cetera. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Right. No, no, it's fine. Titus 1 6, qualification says it must be blameless, must be but one wife. Mm-hmm. And then whose children believe and not only tried to be the one that's obedient. Right. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? I, I, I don't. Probably not sufficiently. Just have children that are. Right. You know, believe and. and right. Despite our best efforts. <laughs> right. I think, I think most people are going to say that that is clearly children who are under the man's direct authority and, and influence. You know, there's a, con- a time when a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh, and there's just an idea at that point he has set up his own home. But, you know, the, the, the very famous statement in, in Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so we do not practice religious freedom at the Davis house, okay? We just don't, all right? I know that religious freedom is a Baptist ideal, but we don't practice it. As for me and my house, this is what we're doing. Now, I'm hoping that my children don't feel that religion is being shoved down their throat. Time will tell, okay? Because the idea there is something shoved down your throat against what you want and what you desire. I don't have any indications of that right now. But the idea is the man has ordered his home around that Joshua 24 principle. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And he knows not only that, the idea is he knows how to manage his family. He, he, he teaches winsomely. They have a desire to follow his influence. Children, just it's a beautiful thing. They come into the world. You know, Jesus says, I tell you, unless you're converted and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's something sweet and positive about a child. They come in wanting to be influenced and led. So the idea is if the children are wild and disobedient at an early stage, something's amiss there. Um, it's very hurtful then if you're looking at adult children who aren't walking with the Lord and going back to the you know, 60-year-old pastor and saying, I don't think you have the right to, you know, that I think is, and this is what I somewhat argued against in my sermon on Isaiah 1, where it said, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I, God, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And he's going to say in Isaiah 5, what more could I have done than I did? Now, we know that the new covenant answer is you could have taken out the heart of stone and given a heart of flesh. We'll get to that in due due time. But in an absolute sense, he did for Jerusalem what was necessary, and they rebelled. And so, to me, I think that's a sucker handed to parents of grown rebels. And there's a regular pattern of godly men who had ungodly children. And all of them, I think, as I said in my sermon, all of them, if you took them aside and said, were you a sinless, flawless parent? No, but we're not understanding sinless and flawless parenting any more than we're taking the word blameless to be sinless either. We're just saying that the man knows how to organize his family. He is doing family devotions. He's evangelizing and discipling their children, and they're drawn along with that, and they're following, etc. I just believe time will tell. I think it's only until they get out of the house and they make their own decisions that you can clearly see what really happened in their lives. Not to say you can't see things in teenagers or youth. You can, but ultimately. So that's a good question. Anything else? minute over but um, anybody who hasn't asked a question yet like to ask one 
Okay, well, please pre, uh, keep praying about, about this. Keep praying about um, the different things that we're bringing up. Um, we are looking at a gray area in which Christians can disagree. Uh, I have lots of good friends that are Presbyterians that see uh, polity differently than I do, and we just agree to disagree. We talk about it amiably somewhat. Um, I don't mean the amiably somewhat. I mean we talk about it somewhat. But you know, there comes a point in which we, we, we come to the point, like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, where there's just much more to talk about. He's a Baptist. He's a Presbyterian. And there it is. There's not much more to say. Um, but I also would like you to keep reading the, the draft that's out there and see if there's any questions you have about what's being going to be acted on in August. We're going to have three formal Q&A sessions. Um, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. My goal is that by the time the August church conference comes around, you all will be like, okay, we get it, we know, we're, we're ready. You know, um, Because there will be ample time for discussing and raising issues and all that. I think it would be wise for us to do it then. Uh, rather than have a protracted meeting in August. But if that's what the church wants to do, that's fine. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for the time we've had tonight to look at congregationalism and various other types of polities, trying to understand the relationship between the authority of the elders and the responsibility of the congregation and the relationship between the two. Now, Father, we thank you for your wisdom in setting up this balanced system. We're grateful for it, and, and we see the wisdom in it. Lord, I pray that you continue to lead us uh, biblically, lead us in a path of unity and love toward one another. I'm just so delighted and grateful to be here at this church at this time with these brothers and sisters, and I just pray that you'd help us to keep being like the Bereans, uh, studying and seeing scripturally if these things are so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.